Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to you. And one word, help, help. A thousand point swing on Wall Street yesterday, Ukraine, Russia, inflation, party gates, and I didn't know. Well, thankfully, in this Master Investor Forum, we have three panelists who do know, and over the next hour are going to help us look at the major themes and opportunities that lie ahead. They are all contributors to the Master Investor Forum and the, the Master Investor Platform and have CVs so extensive it would take a full hour for me to reference all their achievements. Joining me for the next hour are Victor Hill, Mark Watson, Mitchell and Jonathan Davies, a warm welcome to you all and all of you watching on this platform and being and uh, YouTube as well. So Victor, is volatility a theme of 2022? Has this month's stock market behaviour set the template for the rest of the year? Yes, I think so. Um, I think that things will continue as they've begun. Um, you know, thank you for your introduction, by the way, Sarah. Um, you know, um, I was asked to, you know, just sketch out the main themes of um, 2022. And I said, there's basically three strands which we need to look at. One is the macroeconomics, the background being one of inflation, which looks like it's going to persist. Um, so the story about the transitory inflation that the central bankers tried to sell us last year uh, doesn't really wash anymore. And you have combined with that, you know, the prospect of, of, of increased interest rates. The Fed is signaled yesterday that the first uh, hike will probably come in March. That has all kinds of um, structural impacts on, on markets. The second theme is really technology. Will the technology stocks bear up post-COVID? Um, will they continue to boom? They had a wonderful run during the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, but the tech universe may be about to change for reasons that I think we might have a chance to discuss. And the third main strand is, of course, geopolitics. And in particular, right at this moment, we have an extremely dangerous situation with Russia uh, assembling an army on the borders of Ukraine, which might or might not um, in, in, in cross over the frontier in the, in the form of a full-scale invasion. Now, there are all kinds of ramifications of that, which we can discuss. But one of those is what is the relationship between Russia and China? Have they actually put together a pact whereby Russia invades Ukraine and China seizes Taiwan at the same time? There are all kinds of nightmare scenarios out there. On the other hand, war is not in inevitable, and this may be resolved in some kind of peace conference, which I think is what the Russians really want something, a, a, a new Helsinki agreement. You remember Hels Helsinki was 1975, which set the diplomatic architecture for the next 25 years. So I guess, you know, we, we can discuss these things. We're living in, in interesting times, as the Chinese say. Um, all kinds of reasons to be uh, cautious, uh, particularly in, with regard to the equity markets. And I, I, I think, and I, I'm sure my fellow panelists will want to come back to this, one of the main questions is, is, is one of the keys to good investing in 2022 is asset allocation. And I think, you know, we might, we might want to discuss that further. 
Well, thanks very much. I feel totally depressed now. So let's go to uh, Mr. Sunshine, uh, Mark Watson Mitchell, because it sounds as though we, we, we're needing to follow a defensive play. I mean, inflation, nightmare scenarios. I mean, this, this month's trading for you. I had a sneaky peek at your portfolio, Mark. And are you factoring in inflation and the situation in the Ukraine when you are trading? Right. Number one, I'm not trading. Okay, that's very important. Um, number two, I see inflation going to 10%. Absolutely, no doubt. Uh, you've only got to go around the supermarkets to work out the massive hike in prices. And uh, goods are lowering in volume whilst their prices are going higher. And this is a way that Manufacturers, obviously, and retailers have to cope with the situation. But I do see it going higher in inflation. Forget what the government says, in my view. Um, you've only got to see the way that the Amazon vans aren't delivering as much as they were. Uh, at one time, during the uh, isolation period, we had vans going all over the place, uh, and it was just uh, phenomenal. Um, and it wasn't. It was Sainsbury's, and it was Tesco's, and it was Morrison's delivering, and and Amazon, of course. Um, but now it's reduced massively. So I, I think you know sales are tempered. So um, going on Victor's point, um, yes, I see. I see technology stocks lowering, um, and. Um, I find that I find them very hard to value, um, and that we are led massively by the states, where they are just carried away on stupid valuations. In my view, um, I like value stocks. I like to see value in a balance sheet. I like to see levels of um, market anticipation. I like to see that the companies know where their market is, as opposed to guessing where their market is. Um, that's why I like the annual recurring revenue stocks, because they know that their money is coming in um, month after month after month, year after year. And if they keep on building up the ARR, then they are going to create a lot of wealth inside their business. Mark, so I, don't, I do have to ask you something. You said that you're, that you're not trading. Had I yes. used the wrong word or do you take January off? Because um, no, you, just, no. you just mentioned- I don't trade. Right. I don't trade. Okay, so the annual recurring revenue stocks that you've just yes. referenced there, are you able to give us an insight into which ones you think are attractive? Well, I mean, I love Cape Technologies. I mean, that's controlled by, uh, Teddy Zaghi, and the Cypriot uh, Israeli, and he is a very, very, very shrewd man, a billionaire, and he's even increased his stake in his own business. Uh, I think it's up to about 54% now. You don't get many people doing that. Um, so, And they've made a massive acquisition late last year, which I think is going to be absolutely superb. Um, other stocks I like get busy, which is a lovely old favourite of mine. Um, 
they've, they've got a very good uh, ARR, right? Um, but then I also come down to, uh, if you want to know what my other sectors I like. Um, Just one more, and then I'm going to bring Jonathan yeah. in because, um, yeah, so, so one more, and then I'm going to uh, talk to Jonathan about history repeating itself. Okay, Central NIC, Central NIC. They're the people that uh, have control on a lot of our internet domains. And they know, I think they run at 99% annual recurring revenue. Oh, hell. I knew <laughs> where my money was coming in every time. Anyway. So that's, um, that is a, a technology stock, particularly as it's probably controlling, controlling our lives in terms of um, our shopping. Yeah. And, and uh, but it's, it's a good value stock, not one of these sky high 50 to 80 to 100, 200 times PEs. You know, this one's much, much more reasonable. Okay, so I've marked its card, but Jonathan, just listening to um, the scene setters that Mark and Victor have established, um, you know, you've written for um, all the big broadsheets and Market Week, and you're on investment panels, and you understand about unit trusts, which I don't. Um, but a lot of these themes in terms of inflation and attrition and conflict, they are recurring. So surely we should be able to predict trading themes 2022 might not be that different a year well uh thank you uh i'd start from a slightly different position i have to say i mean i've been around a long time like uh, my fellow panelists and uh, lived through a lot of bear, bull and bear markets and uh, i always start each year with a uh, not with predictions but with a sense of humility because quite often whatever we say is going to happen doesn't happen and that has been the kind of one of the main lessons that I've taken away from 40 years of following these things. Uh, I also don't uh, uh, primarily invest in individual stocks. I primarily invest in investment trusts, which I think are the, the best way to invest in. Uh, if you're going to use uh, managed funds, they have a superior track record for a number of reasons to open-ended funds like unit trusts. So I don't invest in many open-ended funds. So my special area is investment trusts and different kind of some different criteria apply when thinking about the future. So essentially, I am already putting my faith in some of the people who I've invested with. That's by definition what you do if you invest in uh, actively managed funds. And uh, so I listen a lot to what they're saying, and I uh, try to form my judgments on the basis of that. Um, but I think uh, the key point that I would make here is that uh, this year does look like it's going to be slightly different from the ones we've had for the last uh, for a number of years. I mean, my uh, I always start by looking at a very simple chart, which is the US 10-year bond yield. and uh, Remarkably, it has been going down for almost the entire time of my uh, professional career. Uh, and yet it's never yet broken out of the down channel over the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years. And uh, when that happens, and I will be confident there's a regime change. Um, I'm not sure there is going to be a big regime change. And notwithstanding the fact that we've got high inflation and, and uh, uh, bond yields are going up, interest rates are going up. What I do think that means is there's going to be volatility this year, undoubtedly, while the investors try to make sense of all these different things that are going on. And uh, it's not surprising we've seen volatility already. Um, and I would be personally, uh, you know, at some point we'll get on to saying, I think, you know, not what do you think, but what are you doing, which I think is always the question uh, well worth asking. And uh, uh, I've become pretty uh, negative, I, but I'm not uh, trying to make choices about things I don't know the answer to. So I don't know whether the Russians are going to invade Ukraine. I know it's a risk, but I don't know what the outcome is. Um, I certainly don't know where we're going to end next year in terms of interest rates and inflation. 
Um, I wish I did, but I don't spend my time looking at that. It's a, it's a difficult uh, thing to, uh, to get right, as we know. And in particular, we don't know whether the Fed, Federal Reserve, which has put itself on a course to uh, tighten monetary policy, is in fact going to run away if the markets go uh, bad, like they've done several times before. So there's an awful lot of uncertainty out there, and uh, I am therefore taking a, a, a more cautious approach. Uh, and I've sold quite a lot of things and gone into cash and more defensive investments. So uh, I'm waiting to see how this pans out. I'm not going to try and call all these extraordinary uh, uh, risks and variables that are out there. Can you expand a little bit more? I mean, you just said there um, the question that we should be asking is, right, so what are you doing? And you've, you've given me a very broad brush answer that you've, um, you've sold out and you're going into cash. But um, can you be a bit more specific? Yes, I mean, I haven't done that. I've only done that once before in the last uh, in the last 20 years. And that was in uh, 2007, where I was very lucky because I actually uh, had a had a conversation with a member of the uh, the Bank of England, um, you know, managing board. And uh, they told me that they for the first time had no idea what was going to happen during the financial crisis that was coming along. And uh, if they didn't know, then I certainly didn't know. And I took some defensive action. The reason I'm doing that now is slightly different because um, we have been in this extraordinary period since the global financial crisis, where, uh, as I said, bond yields been falling. We've had we've had uh, extraordinary monetary stimulus, um, and that is coming to an end. And so, uh, we don't know quite whether it's going to be dramatic or whether it's going to be uh, relatively, um, uh, you know, spread over a number of years. Um, but my view is that I'm not having made significant gains over the last ten years by being essentially invested in growth stocks and uh, growth uh, trusts, uh, I'm not confident that's going to continue. Uh, and so I'm basically, I've, I've sort of taken off my big growth bias bets and I've put some value stocks in there, or value trusts in there, I should say. Uh, and I've got a lot of cash because I'm waiting to see. I think this is a, going to be a very, it could well be a pivotal year. Uh, and I'm not prepared to put it, you know, at, at risk uh, a lot of the money that I've made by being, uh, you know, fortunately well positioned over the last uh, 10 years. So, Victor, what are you doing? How are you positioning yourself? Well, if I can just pick up um, a point made by Mark and one by uh, Jonathan. Um, technology stocks, we all know they've had a phenomenal run, um, and particularly in the last two years during the pandemic. Now, these stocks have been around, uh, in some cases, for a relatively short time. So if you take Facebook, it was only incorporated in 2003. That's less than 20 years ago, you know, and, and, and then it floated a couple of years later. Now, these media, these social media companies have only existed in a world of near zero interest rates for most of their uh, existences. And they've, furthermore, they, they, they've profited from, you know, this extraordinary amount of QE, the printing of money by the central banks worldwide, which has pushed up asset prices overall. So it, it's, it, it's quite possible, um, even, you know, um, given Tim's, uh, Mark's point about the, um, you know, the, the, the absence of the Amazon vans, um, it's quite possible that these technology stocks are riding for a fall in a world of rising interest rates. Now, we, we don't know what the rates are going to be by the end of this year or by the end of next year. Um, few people think that um, interest rates in the US or the UK will be much above 2% uh, by next year. We think that they'll be very 
minor incremental increases, possibly as many as seven uh, this year. But you know, you're still looking at historically low levels of interest rates um, this year and next. Um, but the, the overall trend line um, looks to be that there might be a reversion to a more historically normal level of interest rates. And so looking ahead, um, somebody commented on the screen, um, are we going to look at you know, medium to long-term investment prospects? I think we, we might well be at a turning point where interest rates are heading back up to normality. So, um, you know, when I was um, working in hedge funds, um, you know, the risk-free rate was always, you know, considered to be 5% because that was the long-term average of the yield on, as Jonathan mentioned, on yield um, on 10-year treasuries. And of course, we then went through a, a, a historically highly abnormal period when the risk-free rate eventually effectively went to zero. So what I'm saying, what I'm not doing is allocating to um, big cap uh, stocks and particularly to big cap uh, technology stocks. And you know, remember, Apple is seven percent of the um, of the Nasdaq. You know, so if Apple were to take a, a hit, um, which I'm not saying it's going to do, but it, it could be affected by the crunch in global supply lines and the, the you know the, the the lack of microprocessors, or in the scenario which I alluded to earlier, if if China were to take Taiwan, um, the global supply of microprocessors would be disrupted um, quite extraordinarily. So I mean, that kind of event would have a massive impact on the likes of Apple, and that in turn would affect the market as a, a, as a whole. So um, if, you're, if, 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 if you're allocated to uh, index funds, you, you, know, you, you have to be cautious there. So I, I'm not allocating to these large cap um, tech entities. In fact, I would tend to want to stay clear of them. I mean, uh, Apple has been a one-way bet um, for so long. I just think that could change. Um, and I'm just interested in, in, in reducing equity exposure, not necessarily in favor of bonds, which are not necessarily, you know, obviously as interest rates rise, so the relative attractiveness of bonds increases. Um, but I'm I'm very interested in things like um, Jonathan would uh, no doubt be able to make some recommendations in this space. For example, uh, agricultural land funds, uh, trusts which are looking at uh, agricultural commodities, which are very much on the up uh, right now. Um, one of the um, sources of inflation, which I don't think is fully fed through into the system. Uh, as yet is increases in in um, in food prices agricultural commodities are heading up uh, all over and um, you know shortages of, 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 of rare metals um, of fundamental um, components for um, EV battery production like nickel and lithium all these things are heading north um, so I would say look at commodities look at agriculture look at land um, I don't really have a view on property outside of the UK market, um, but I think that um, you know commercial property is 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 under downward pressure with 
you know, the, 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 the long-term trend towards working at home, which has been accelerated by uh, the pandemic. Um, I'm, I'm quite bullish on some niche technologies. Um, I mentioned, uh, in, 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 well, in fact, one thing I'm quite interested in, um, in the pharmaceutical sector, is that um, you know the, the demand for vaccines and not just for uh, COVID or coronavirus, but for other potentially uh, problematic uh, viruses is going to increase. And we might find ourselves in a situation where we have to have booster jabs at least once a year, if not more frequently. So those vaccine manufacturers of which, you know, obviously Pfizer, BioNTech and so forth are preeminent, Moderna, um, Gilead is an interesting one. They, 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 they haven't done so very well because their um, so-called antiviral uh, medication hasn't really been vindicated um, uh, during the pandemic. But there are other uh, producers of equivalent um, medications. Um, plus the fact that um, a few of the um, pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, are working on vaccines which are nasally administered, which actually would be much more practical, just uh, particularly in the context of the third world, where it's actually very difficult to administer the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine because it has to be held in cold storage. It has a short uh, shelf life. And often you have to administer these vaccines in remote uh, locations. So, um, I'm very bullish on, on niche pharmaceuticals and um, cybersecurity, I think, is a, it, it is a hugely important uh, field, albeit that some of the players in this space haven't done as well as we might have hoped. Uh, uh, Dark Trace is one um, point in, in, in quest. I, don't, I think you follow that, Mark, don't you? No, um, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot for us to deconstruct there, but let's yes. go back to something you mentioned two or three minutes ago, which was about the supply chain. Now, Mark, in terms of um, companies that rely on components, wood, supply chain bits, semiconductors, do we avoid the companies that are component reliant on third parties, um, or do we pa be patient as we wait for their containers to arrive? You're asking me, I, okay, my, my reaction is that the market has already assessed these situations and we start to actually put in values now, taking an 18 month view that the supply chains will get better, that uh, delivery will be that much better. For instance, I like one particular stock in, in the delivery sector, Wind Canton. Absolutely fabulous company. Mm. And they, they work for practically every major retail group across the country. And the profits are going to go um, 50, uh, 47 million last year, 56 million this year, 62 million, and then 70 million. Oh, I love that. You know, this is value, absolutely cracking value. And it's giving a good dividend and uh, the shares are currently about 350. I love it, absolutely love it. So, you know, that's the type of stock I like. And you were already talking about Smith's News earlier on, but perhaps we'll go on to that later on. Um, 
I'd talk, split. talk to us about Smiths now. Talk because you, All right. you and I were speaking about Smiths in the green room and the people watching weren't party to that. Okay, Smiths is a cracking situation. It is, okay, I'm expecting the company to make about um, 9.8 to 10 pence per share in earnings in this current year. And that's to the end of August. The shares are currently 35p. Oh, that's value. Okay, they're in a market. This company has got 55% of the distribution of newspapers and magazines in the UK. John Mentors does the other bit. Um, but 55% is a cracking market hold. They've got contracts with the major publishers going three, four years ahead, which is what they have to do. Historically, they have a bad situation and basically a knackered balance sheet. They're correcting that. They have now done the refinancing with their um, financiers and uh, funding sources, and they are now being able to lift up the amount that they can pay in dividend. Dividend? Uh, it's about 5%, something stupid. I mean, it's, you know... Um, Victor was telling, talking about interest rates. This stock, this has got value, this has got low earnings, and every day we can see what they're doing. Okay, they may not be, may not be making uh, desperately uh, large inroads into increasing their turnover. They turn over about a billion a year. And this is a little company valued at 86 million. Okay, they've got a lot of debt, but that debt is already uh, catered for, and now they can actually lift up the amount of money they pay in dividend. Uh, in about 10 days' time, they're paying one and a half p a share to their shareholders. Um, and the, if you read the, um, our, our article, you'd have actually got a 30% return on your money if you bought them two weeks ago and you sell and you sell out after I'm not selling you to sell out, but if you have actually held them over the payment of the dividend, that's almost a 30% return inside a month. You don't get many stocks like that. Anyway, um, so that's Smith's. I just, I just think it's a cracker. It's, it's not necessarily going to make a lot of money in profits, but those profits on, what is it, uh, three and a half, four times earnings? Well, you know, goodness sake. This is, this is something we can actually feel. The things that I, you know, I like, I like to be able to go across the country and visit factories and look at and meet companies and see what the products are and what the services are. And Smiths, huh, we have it every day. We know what they do. We can actually see it. Now, this is not WH Smiths, but Smiths News, the distribution side. Yeah, I'm interested about you talking about the visiting meat factories because Victor passed the baton on to Jonathan earlier to talk about whether uh, what value uh, was in agricultural funds, for example. So um, meat, clean meat, agricultural funds. Jonathan, is, have they come across your horizon? Uh, the honest answer to that is uh, basically no. <laughs> I don't because there's number of things you can invest in in a specialist way in the investment trust world and uh, uh, there have been some very interesting opportunities over the last year 
which I take about. But in fact, it's a, it's one of the areas where I think you can't get direct exposure to to that uh, directly to agriculture. You can obviously there are uh, trusts that invest in uh, commodities more generally uh, and invest in property and land and so on. But uh, no, they, there's nothing specifically geared to uh, uh, agriculture and land at the uh, at this point. So you um, are have an interest, a keen interest. Um, you edit um, a, a book on unit trusts. So investment, how, investment trusts. And how do we how do we get involved in that? First of all, you've got to learn the title of the book first if you're the hostess. But how do we get involved? How easy is it compared? To, you know, there's a lot of people watching who are only familiar with um, equity investing, for example. Okay, so, uh, well, there's, the book is called The Investment Trust Handbook. I produce it every year, and it's basically a mixture of uh, useful data and a uh, series of perspectives on the uh, on the markets overall and where the opportunities might lie in the investment trust area. I mean, investment trusts, for those who don't know them, are essentially, they are equities, they're listed companies. You can buy them on the stock exchange just like any other company. Um, and they have a distinctive feature, which is that they are, Unlike a unit trust or uh, any kind of open-ended OIC or any kind of open-ended fund you know, or an index fund, uh, they have a board of directors and they have, uh, they're have governed by uh, company law and uh, all the accounting requirements of listed companies. So you, uh, you, they have superior corporate governance uh, in, on most, uh, in most cases. Um, the issue with the investment trust, they're rather more sophisticated. You have to understand the concept of discounts and premiums because they don't always trade if you buy a unit trust, you know the, the value is going to be pretty close to the NAV all the time. If you buy an investment trust, you have to understand that times they, uh, because of supply and demand, they sell at a discount to net asset value, and other times they sell at a premium to net asset value. So you have to understand that. Um, but they're very good vehicles for the long-term investor, uh, which is uh, the kind of audience that I uh, take with, and they've delivered fantastic returns over the last uh, 10, 12 years, uh, and some very good trusts in there. Uh, another feature of them being that you can uh, find out the ones where the managers actually have significant shareholdings in the in their own trust that they're managing, whereas in a unit trust you very rarely find out whether the managers actually have got their own money where their where their mouth is, so to speak. So for all those reasons, they're very good things. They the most interesting aspect of the investment trust world in the last ten years has been the emergence of so-called alternative asset trusts. So these are things which are not just investing in equities, uh, but are investing in uh, more specialist areas. And so we've seen a lot of uh, trusts come which are investing solely in renewable energy, for example, uh, which have been very popular. A lot of specialist property trusts, which uh, I've been uh, buying a lot of in the last 12 months, which uh, invest in, in niche parts of the, uh, of the property market, such as uh, some of them invest in care homes and, and things like that. Others invest in uh, accommodation for the homeless, which is now, as you probably know, uh, it's now a legal requirement for local authorities to uh, try and eliminate homelessness. Uh, and then there's been a very successful a series of investment trusts investing in logistics in all the big warehouses and uh, uh, distribution centers that uh, the Amazons of this world have been using. So they've been very interesting. They mainly sell on a yield basis. They're not going to give you huge capital gains, but they typically target between about uh, somewhere between 7 and 10% per annum uh, annualized returns with a high degree of security in many cases. A lot of them have uh, inflation linking in there. For example, the property ones have inflation linking built into all their uh, contracts and so on. So uh, it's a different kind of investment. It, it's obviously not one if you're trying to chase huge gain, capital gains over the course of a year. 
uh, it's not the kind of thing you're going to uh, you want to invest in. But if you're interested in a slow and steady compounding with a high dividend yield, which I think is going to become more important, uh, has been very you know very much in demand over the last few years to get a, a yield of between five, typically five, six, seven percent, uh, which is uh, without much risk. Uh, they're very attractive uh, propositions, I think, in the current environment where we are. You know, just to go back to the very beginning, just briefly, just to say we are living through this period of what we call financial repression, uh, where the level of interest rates is below the level of inflation uh, and has been for a number of years. Uh, and it's going to stay that way for some time, I think, because, as you all know, governments can't afford to pay back all the debt they've taken on. So they're not going to be in a hurry to, uh, to do that. So uh, these kind of things are going to carry on looking attractive. They're not the only things that are interesting in the investment trust space. Obviously, there's lots of things which have delivered significant capital gains over the last uh, over the last ten years, uh, including, you know, famously Scottish Mortgage, the Bailey Gifford Fund, which has uh, really shot the lights out until the recent, uh, you know, star rotation in the market, and lots of others which have delivered very handsome returns in capital gains. So there's lots of opportunities out there, but but it is a big but. Uh, you know, if you think that we're going to carry on making 15% per annum compound over the next 10 years, as we have done over the last 10 years, I'm afraid I have to tell you, you have to think again, that isn't going to happen. And that's really one reason why I think if the regime is changing, uh, you have to change your investment approach and maybe settle for something uh, rather less ambitious than, uh, uh, than you might otherwise do. And is your book available on Amazon? It is. It's available from uh, it is available from Amazon. It's available directly from the publishers or available from my website. It's published by Harriman House. And go to the Master Investor, not the Master Investor website, I think. the Moneymakers Investment uh, uh, website, which is the one I run and have a little subscription newsletter there, money-makers.co. You can, you can find out all about it there. Okay, so you mentioned um, renewable energy, renewable generation. Victor Goldman Sachs projecting that renewable generation alone represents a 16 trillion US dollar investment opportunity. And their time frame is just up to 2030 alone. So you mentioned it right at the, the, the beginning of the, the webinar. So what more can you tell us that you've well, researched about? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the great um, sort of um, themes of the next three decades is going to be decarbonization, isn't it? It, it? It's almost something that eclipses everything else. Um, how do we get uh, from uh, a fossil fuel-based economy to a, uh, a renewable energy one with net, uh, carbon net zero? Now, wh whether you believe, um, as I do, that in fact, it's probably not feasible to get to net zero by 2050, uh, at least without um, a major depression in standards of living, which will have political consequences, uh, or, or whether you're a technological optimist, as apparently our prime minister is, and think you know, that the solutions will, 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 will be delivered along the way. Um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, that th th this is going to be uh, one of the biggest areas of, of, of the world economy. Um, that said, what's interesting, as far as I've been um, finding out, is that the power generators seem to have performed in, in share price terms um, much more disappointingly than other market participants. So the, the, the people who seem to uh, perform best are the 
companies which produce the technologies, the components that drive renewable energy. So I mentioned, uh, I was writing about this last week um, for the, the, the blog. And uh, if you look at companies like Delta Electronics of Taiwan, which produce photovoltaic cells and arrays, um, they are where the, where the returns are at because the, the, their products are obviously in huge demand. Um, whereas the, the nitty gritty of rolling out solar arrays and of laying cables and of hooking them up to the grid is actually a much more um, you know, basic uh, process, engineering process. And the companies involved in that don't seem to have done uh, so well. Um, I have a number of, let's say questions rather than, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a skeptic um, in terms of climate change or renewable energy. I think it's, you, you, we do have a major problem. Um, the question is how best do we confront it without necessarily impoverishing ourselves? And um, it, it, I just think that uh, wind technology has been overhyped. Um, for one thing, the carbon emissions associated with erecting these wind arrays and manufacturing them and maintaining them and then decommissioning them at the end of their economic lives has not really been factored into the uh, equation. Um, and it, without subsidy, let's face it, even now, um, wind power would not be economic, even though it, it is now a major contributor to, to um, our power grid in the UK. I think it's something like 25% overall. Um, on EVs, well, uh, that's the way it's going. Um, you know, Tesla is now um, a trillion dollar company. Uh, in fact, it's reported um, record profits yesterday and the share price fell. I think it was 9.37 this morning. It's still a massive operation, which is worth more than the next five or six automotive manufacturers combined. Um, so it's an incredible story, considering that was again was an, only incorporated in uh, 2005. It's 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 just an unbelievable success story. But it's based on the idea that um, battery, and particularly lithium-ion battery uh, technology, is going to be the most dominant technology for the rest of the century. And I think that is questionable. Um, for one thing, it takes something like 45. Uh, tons of ore to generate or to refine the um, inputs in terms of lithium, nickel, and so forth, um, uh, which are inputs in um, a basic e EV, uh, EV battery. Um, again, the carbon emissions associated with these practices are not really considered. Plus, there are all kinds of other, you know, um, issues associated with uh, the fact that a lot of these elements are mined in countries with very poor labor standards, um, when, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, which is some of which are quite scandalous. So um, I think hydrogen technology um, is going to be the one to watch in the next 10 years. Um, and there might even be some technological breakthroughs announced in terms of um, green hydrogen generation um, in the next year or so. In fact, we're just beginning to see the rise of a pink hydrogen 
industry. Uh, pink hydrogen is where you, 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 you generate um, hydrogen through electrolysis. Basically, you run an electric current through water, which is H2O. But the current in question is generated by nuclear electricity. So, so the, it, it, it's a form of hydrogen uh, generation which does not involve any carbon emissions at all. So it's, it's equivalent to uh, green hydrogen. And uh, there again, I'm, I'm quite bullish on nuclear. I think that we have to bite the bullet and we have to accept that we are going to have to have a core uh, nuclear production facility to run our grid. And that has to be beefed up. And, and the potential solution there is in terms of these so-called small modular reactors, which can actually be uh, put together in a factory and then shipped out and deployed on site and connected uh, to the grid. And we know that Rolls-Royce is a leader in this technology and they, 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 they've proven they can do it. Um, they, the, you, you know, the government is, is now seriously looking at this. The French have already started to um, roll out a program of uh, small modular uh, reactors, which are going to replace the um, first generation technology uh, nuclear network. And by the way, the French who are obviously leaders in uh, nuclear power generation have experienced um, quite a few health uh, safety uh, issues in the last few months with six of their plants actually uh, idle right now as they undergo maintenance. So um, Rolls-Royce, I think we should be watching um, very closely. And I think that, that that's, that's a very good story. Plus they're obviously leaders in um, aero engines and they've got some wonderful products uh, coming on stream. They're working on hydrogen uh, powered aircraft, uh, which I wrote about last week. There are all kinds of engineering problems associated with that. Personally, I don't think hydrogen aviation is ever going to be feasible beyond uh, short haul and probably smaller uh, aircraft, but it it will have its place. Um, so, can I just wait here a second? Uh, yes, uh, please. I, Jonathan, can I just very quickly mention um, the, the prospect of gigafactories in the UK producing um, batteries? British Vault, you will have noticed, has been given basically a check uh, from the government, or it's promised a check from the government, for 100 million to build this new gigafactory in Blythe up in Northumberland. Well, yeah, I think we need to be a little bit cautious about allocating public money to an entity that has no track record in, in actually uh, generating a product. That, that thus far, there hasn't been a single uh, British Volks uh, battery produced. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing, I'm not making a political point. I'm just saying that we have to be cautious that such projects can actually deliver. Sorry, Jonathan. Not at all. Uh, I wanted to make a couple of points, really. One about renewable energy. Um, one, there are actually 20 investment trusts in the renewable energy sector now. They've been a very big growth area. Uh, and the, the better ones, are, they, they all offer deals of between 5 and 7%. But they're not just, they're, there's, a, there's wind generators, there's solar power people. There's also, I think one of the more interesting ones, is there's, there's a couple of new, relatively new investment trusts, one of which invests in, uh, in battery storage. Uh, and another one, which a couple which invest in energy efficiency, which of course is actually probably, I would argue, a slightly better way to look at investing in into the carbon, you know, zero carbon future. 
um, because energy efficiency has got to be a high part, or a good part of what happens. And the problem with renewable energy, as you correctly point out, is that as soon as governments get involved and start throwing subsidies around, you know, it actually, first of all, attracts a lot of capacity into the sector, uh, driving down rates of return. Uh, and secondly, of course, it leads to distortions in the market as well. So just the fact that we are, we can see this clear trend going out 20 years, we know the direction of travel. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make an awful lot of money out of investing in it if you're investing directly into the uh, into the into the output, for example. So it's quite a it's a slightly more complicated area than one would like to think. It would be nice if everybody was uh, all putting their money into these things and uh, helping to drive uh, carbon emissions down. Uh, but it is it's definitely a, a good area to look at if you can find projects. I mean the the renewable energy trusts I mentioned, some of them trade on big premiums because there's so much in demand. But they're still offering a yield of five percent or so but you've got to take the risk of losing a bit of capital over time because those premiums will erode uh, but it does tell you that uh, the more uh, professionals a lot of these trusts are, are owned by wealth managers and investment institutions who are looking to increase their exposure to this kind of theme uh, but are struggling to find better ways of doing it than uh, than through this particular means so 2022 Tipping points, potential tripping points. Um, 45 tonnes of ore, that was quite um, a fact check in terms of EVs and lithium. But there's a, a question come through uh, from the audience, Mark, I'm going to ask you this. It's from Ashok, who says, are there sectors that perform well and poorly during particular months of the year? I mean, before we used to talk about sell in May and come back in September. I'm just not sure that that applies anymore. No. Well, uh, yes, seasonality. Yes, it's a good question. A very good question. Um, I have to say, I have not done an analysis on it, because um, the actual, gosh, the uh, ramifications of doing that are really quite enormous. Um, I only follow companies from a million to 500 million in market cap. Um, it's a lot of companies, and to try and analyze the seasonality in that, um, I, sure. I wouldn't be sleeping. So uh, it's a good question. Um, I, I can't really help. That's okay, but you can tell us um, what else you're looking at in this, okay. in this, but in this love, first quarter. Okay, well, I love, well, we've already spoken about um, the rising oil and gas prices going on. That is currently, we're now looking what, what could be $100 a barrel for oil. I mean, it's, it's not that far away. And 90, like, 90 it, today. Exactly. Absolutely right. So it is just a fraction of, of a few dollars away. Um, we've been there before, and I think we're going to go up there again soon, which actually brings me down to three little oil stocks, oil and gas stocks that I recently featured on Master Investor. Um, and they are um, I3 Energy, which has got uh, some Canadian interests, and um, the one that we did earlier on this week, which is Europa Oil and Gas, which is uh, on the Wrestle field in uh, North Lincolnshire. And, and the third stock is um, IOG, and they're out in the, um, the bay, the, uh, the wash, and 
I think they won't be that long before they're actually producing gas, which is going to, going to catch the market just at the right time because prices are going, going, going so much higher currently. So and these are three little penny stocks. IOG is currently uh, uh, 34, 34p. Uh, I3 Energy is 13.85 pence. And the other one, Europa Oil and Gas, it's now 2p. I mean, when I did it earlier on this week at 1.57. And the dealing volume this week in Europa Oil and Gas has been incredible. The average, daily average of 1.3 million shares traded was exceeded the day that uh, I profiled it. I think 8.9 million that day. And we've had unbelievable levels of dealing volume subsequently. People are now beginning to realize that the sellers in that stock are, have been taken out and that their potential is massive. Uh, I think the, fee, the um, one of the brokers is actually valuing the stock at 7p a share, and they're currently 2p. I think, uh, I think it's very interesting. Three little penny stocks, three little oil stocks, and I love it. Um, elsewhere, um, what do I like? I'm just Actually, a couple, there's a couple of questions coming, but hold that thought because um, you might be anticipating some of the questions that have come through because we're hearing a little bit of um, white mechanical noise in the background of this uh, webinar, which leads me into two questions that we've, um, we've got. Are there the reported potential problems with 5G temporary? Because we know that um, some of the airlines, particularly in the US, are saying don't roll out the 5G. It will... Um, it will Im impact the safety of the airline industry. So that's one, the 5G, any problems with that? And then uh, we have got, uh, what is your view on drone technology use as air taxis and also the companies that would benefit in the manufacture and the air traffic management of these drones? So two tech related questions. It doesn't have to be stock specific, but um, are, are any of you, um, do you have any views on the 5G conundrum and drones in authorised and unauthorised zones? That's got to be Victor. Well, you know, I've been writing about flying taxis for a couple of years now. I think it's a wonderful um, opportunity and I think it's viable. And there are quite a few players in this space already and quite a few designs. Um, I can refer you to an article I did um, uh, about a year ago, which had a number of links to um, these, these various designs and manufacturers. Basically, the technology is already there. Um, you can uh, launch these things into the air and they will take you um, at the moment with a pilot uh, to your destination, uh, which might be up to say 60 miles away and um, in a very convenient and efficient way. And they are, they are electric powered so there are no carbon emissions. Um, and they're, they're already, um, the German railway company is rolling out um, these sort of launch pods on the, 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 the roofs of German railway stations in the in anticipation that these um, machines will be flying um, quite in the very short term. So uh, there's an awful lot going on there. Um, there will be an Uber of the skies. And I don't doubt that um, Uber and the other 
ride hailing apps will be in on this so that you instead of just getting a, having the option to be driven across town you'll have the option to get a to get a flying taxi there uh, as well of course there are there are logistical issues about you know you have to have an appropriate uh, landing uh, pod and and so forth so I, I think we're going to hear an awful lot about that. Um, it also would have the welcome effect of taking traffic off, off the road, uh, which can only be a good thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, drones are fundamental now in the defense industry. And um, as you know, a, a, a whole um, number of specialist um, operate, uh, producers have emerged. The Israelis seem to have a a particular advantage in this uh, sector. And uh, they've produced some extraordinary machines which are, you know, prowling over the skies of, of the Eastern Mediterranean um, in all kinds of capacities. So, you know, I think um, drones are just a, a revolutionary technology. On, on 5G, I, I can't claim to be an expert, but what I do know is that um, 5G is not just one thing. It's not just a function of the frequency on which you transmit. It's a cluster of different technologies, which when bundled together, give you much increased um, performance in terms of uh, data transmissibility. So I, I would have thought that the engineers could sort this out. And I can't really understand why the um, telecoms operators didn't consult with the airlines in the US before. I mean, it seems very curious to me. They're obviously not talking to one another. There's a, it, it, it seems to be like a breakdown in communications. But okay. I, it, it, in principle, it, it's soluble. Very good. Now, um, we did start off talking about inflation and interest rates. Another question um, from the audience. Do you expect the banks to outperform in a rising interest rate environment? Will positive margins on borrowing exceed likely write-offs from increasing bad debts? I think the answer to that is probably yes. Um, it should be yes. It depends, of course, on the yield curve. In other words, whether the relationship between short-term interest rates and longer-term interest rates. But if uh, if the uh, uh, it remains a positive yield curve, then uh, yes, I would expect the banks to outperform. Indeed, uh, one of the things that I've put some money into recently is a investment trust called Polar Capital Global Financials, which is basically a way to play. Uh, this particular idea that the banks will do well. I mean, the banks are terrible businesses to invest in normally. Uh, you know, you only have to listen to Terry Smith talking about the banks and you don't actually know much about what's going on. Their accounts are opaque, but it's undoubtedly the case that they are in much better shape than they were 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, everybody who did get, you know, got sucked into the great banking boom before the financial crisis has had to pay a, you know, a heavy price if they've uh, gone on holding those shares since despite having some quite uh, you know, good looking yields in many cases, they have been terrible performers. Um, but in, in this environment, if it is a change in regime, yes, of course, they're going to do very well. And I think it'd be a good thing to stick some of those into your portfolio, even if you have to hold your nose to do so. So you've keep, you keep talking about changing the regime. Uh, what exactly are you talking about? Are you talking about um, the political situation in the US and the UK? Are we talking about Boris and waiting for Miss Gray's report? No, I'm not spending any time worrying about that. I don't think that's going to have much impact on the market, um, whatever your views about it. Uh, I don't think much about, about politics. I mean, uh, the very occasionally it will have an impact, but it's not the most important thing. Geopolitics, another matter. I mean, invasion uh, of Ukraine or Chinese invading Taiwan. Yes, of course, that's uh, that's a massive uh, concern. And if that happens, you would see a, uh, 
uh, a flight out of all risk assets. Of course you would. Um, but no, not in, uh, in, in the, you know, frankly, whether Boris goes or stays, I don't think that's going to make a huge difference to the uh, performance. It's interesting, though, that to note that the pound has been going up ever since that uh, he ran into problems. So maybe, maybe the, uh, the uh, currency traders think it will be a good thing if he does go. Um, but no, this is just a simple matter of economics. I mean, the banks do well when, when the yield curves is positive and interest rates are rising. That's uh, just a uh, everybody knows that, and that's why you can be fairly certain it will happen. And uh, if, but when I say regime change, what I'm talking about is a change in the inflation, growth, and interest rate environment, uh, which I'd say I'm not yet convinced that we've actually broken out of this long uh, down channel that we've been in with bond yields. But uh, if we have, that would be regime changes for investors, um, and uh, that would be very positive for the banks. Okay, Mark, I'm going to let you have the final word because I have cut you short three oh, times and you were, no you were about to tell us about there was one or two more stocks that um, you, you were paying attention to. Oh, there are so many. Um, so what have I got? Yes, I like the building supply sector. Uh, stocks I like are Alimask, uh, Brickability and Speedy Hire. Those three very good companies. Um, Alimask got their figures out shortly. Brickability had them out, I think, a week or so ago. At, at three, very interesting companies. Elsewhere, I like the property sector. One of my favorites is Inland Homes, which is massively undervalued. I think it's about half the real value. And their shares are currently, um, they are 53p. I think they're at least 65, 70p. They've got their figures coming out very shortly, but it's the actual ability of that company to use other people's money to develop all of their green uh, brownfield uh, properties. And I, they are expert at this business. They haven't lost one application for a brownfield development. And that is really quite impressive. And that's over 20 years. Um, Helical. Got 10 seconds left. Okay, whoops, there you go. Uh, Helical is a property business, a very solid, very solid company. They have just taken REIT status or back to for April next year, which means that they will be able to pay much more of their profits out in dividends, which is in, in very encouraging. And finally, in that sector as well, Harworth, another company in the brownfield sector. That's Harworth Group. Many, many right. thanks. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're experts and that you're polymaths because we touched on a lot of themes, um, micro and macro. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed, Victor thank Hill. You. What's Mark Watson Mitchell and Jonathan Davis? We also want to thank uh, Master Investor Chief Executive Tim Corcoran, who's a very hands-on chief executive he's been operating the controls of this webinar today but two things to tell you master investor has launched its app and you can read all the nuggets from all our panelists tonight um, the content is amazing and we have a full day of it on march the 19th it's a saturday it's the uk's first real big investor show it is at the business design center 
in London, March the 19th. It's a Saturday, we're all going to be there, plus some amazing guests and lots of companies who um, have been dying to, um, to see the whites of your eyes for so long. So we're gonna go for 2022, a volatile year, but one where we'll be seeing each other in person again. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.